Good to see you here this morning. Glad you chose to be at Northwest with us today. Well, we began a series last week in which we're going to explore what it really means to be a follower of Jesus and what it looks like for a true follower of Jesus to also help others to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. This series is going to take us uh, several weeks, but last week we talked about uh, the high invitation uh, that Jesus uh, set forth for those that would follow him. Uh, You know many of you because you've studied God's word that Jesus was a a first century rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, and for many rabbis, Jerry uh, very well laid it out for us last week, for many rabbis they would only take the very best of the best students. There were very, very few that were qualified and even fewer that made it to the final stages of being part of what we talked about last week, the Talmudim or the disciples of a rabbi. But Jesus, as he did in so many areas, and I I would challenge you uh, this morning that if you've never read through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, that you do that. Jesus, right from the beginning of his ministry, had a habit of upending the system that was around him. And Jesus, in this case, upended the whole system of the Talmudim, and he invited the most unqualified people imaginable to be part of his group of followers, those that had very little education and never would have made it to the final stages of being in any rabbi's Talmudim. In other words, Jesus chose the average, the mediocre, the ordinary to be part of his group, and he called them his disciples. I don't know about you, but I am encouraged by that. I'm encouraged uh, that you don't have have to be at a certain level uh, in the socioeconomic system in order for God to use you. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to be the most educated. You don't have to be the, the best looking, the brightest. God shows average, mediocre, ordinary people in Jesus invested in their lives. And that high invitation also came with a great amount of grace. And even though Jesus believed in his disciples, after all, he did choose them Uh, they had a hard time believing that they could actually be like their teacher, like their rabbi. But it's important for us to understand uh, this morning as we go a little bit deeper into this subject of discipleship. The discipleship starts when we understand that Jesus chose us, that God chose us. In fact, Scripture is very, very clear that that from the beginning of time before uh, we were ever even a thought that God chose us and He knew that we would come into a relationship with him. And it's not because we're amazing or because we're exceptional, but because we're weak. And when we're willing to accept that role of learning and growing, that's when he can use us. And so Jesus issues a high invitation. We saw that last week. But what we want to focus on today is that Jesus not only gave us a great invitation to come and be one of his disciples, but he also gave us an incredibly high challenge, a challenge that uh, to many of us might seem extreme. Now, you may say today, you're here and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and you may say, well, I don't really see it as that extreme. I mean, being a follower of Jesus is really not that big a deal. It's just one of the things that I add to who I am as a person. Well, maybe today your system will be upended. 
Because the challenge that Jesus issued to those of us that would follow him is not only a great high invitation, but it's also an incredible challenge. Did you know that Barna Research has reported that 65% of 18 to 42-year-olds in America have, quote, made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important to them? 65%. And on the surface, that may be very encouraging news until you read the survey results further. Listen to this. Only 23% of that 65% believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong. Only 23%. Now, as much as, you know, when we were in high school and college, we might have liked there to have been a different biblical standard, God's very, very clear that sex outside of marriage is not the way that he intended it to be. But 23% of the 65% that said they've made a commitment to Jesus Christ said, we don't see that there's anything wrong with that. Further, only 13% said that getting drunk is a sin. But you can be controlled by an alcoholic beverage and that's not a sin. And if you were to read this survey, the list goes on and on. You get what I mean. While 65% of 18 to 42-year-olds would say they've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that's important to them, their life certainly doesn't reflect that level of commitment. In other words, we could say it this way, 65% say they're committed to Jesus as long as that commitment doesn't conflict with their own desires. But Jesus never left open the option of selective commitment. You don't choose to be just a fan or a follower. If you are a follower of Jesus, then everything in your life is ultimately supposed to change. In fact, we call that sanctification. That's the doctrinal term for it. That when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we are in the process of becoming more like him every single day. And scripture says we won't fully understand that. We won't fully uh, become like what he wants us to be until we get to heaven and we actually see him as he is. But until then, we are growing and we are becoming more like him. Because when we become followers of Jesus, everything is supposed to change. Imagine with me for just a moment that you and I have a meeting set up for lunch at a restaurant. And you arrive before I do, and uh, you wait and wait and wait, but 30 minutes later, you're still waiting because I've not arrived. And when I finally show up, I come in completely out of breath and very disheveled, and I I say, I'm so sorry that I'm late. When I was driving over here, I had a flat tire, and so I had to pull alongside of the road to change the flat tire. And you may not believe this, but while I was fixing it, I accidentally stepped back out into the road and this Mack truck was coming down the road at about 70 miles an hour. And I accidentally stepped out in front of him and man, he hit me full force, knocked me off the ground. And when I was changing the tire and and it really hurt really, really bad, but I got back up and I changed the tire and I'm, I'm finally here. I'm so sorry that I'm late. How would you respond to that story? If that was the story I I shared with you, you would know that I was, A, either deliberately lying to you or that I was quite delusional. Why? Because if I had actually been hit by a Mack truck going 70 miles an hour, I would look different, right? Right? In fact, you would say, no, you wouldn't just look different. Like, you, you would be... You wouldn't be there, right? 
I hope you get my point. The point is this, that simply said, people who claim to be followers of Jesus and yet experience no change in their lives are, and are no different from the rest of the world, if that's you this morning, you have obviously never met Jesus in a real way. The dictionary defines a fan as an enthusiastic admirer. Fans want to be close enough to Jesus to get the benefits, but not so close that it would ever require sacrifice of them. Uh, Fans are fine with repeating a prayer or attending a church service. In fact, fans may actually be okay with putting one of those little fish on the back of the car. Uh, They might even go so far as a fish that, you know, is eating the Darwin uh, fish. They might go that far. But Jesus never asked us to sit on the sidelines and simply just cheer for the cause for which he came. Jesus never called us to simply be fans. He's calling people to be fully devoted followers of his. In fact, Jesus said that it was possible for us to be convinced that we were followers, that we were true disciples when, in fact, we're nothing more than fans. If you have your Bible, turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, in your Bible or on your electronic uh, device, your phone, your iPad. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, I believe probably are some of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. They come, in fact, right at the end of what I told you earlier. They come right at the end of Jesus' uh, famous Sermon on the Mount where he was preaching, and he gets right down to the end of his sermon, and he makes this statement which must have been so troubling to those uh, that were there that had become his disciples, maybe even his inner circle. Jesus said in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, on that day, what's that day? It's that day of, of judgment, whether that is at the great white throne judgment or at the Bema seat. In this case, it would be the great white throne judgment where those that have never placed their trust in Christ alone as their Savior find themselves in that judgment line. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and we did many mighty works in your name? In other words, you you have to know who we are. I mean, we were, we were close to you. You saw us in church every Sunday. In fact, we helped in the children's ministry. We even helped lead worship. We were involved in the student ministry. Jesus, come on now. You're, you're joking, right? Verse 23. The most sobering words, I believe, in all of Scripture. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's incredibly important to realize that in this particular text, Jesus is not talking to irreligious people. Jesus is talking to people who, in some cases, would be characterized as people like you and like me. In fact, he's talking to people, literally, who have become obsessed with religious activity, and yet they've been deceived. Self-deception happens when uh, four things, I believe, take place in our lives. Number one, we have a false doctrine of assurance. 
We buy into the idea that because we prayed a prayer, because we raised a hand, because we filled out a card, or because we walked down an aisle, or because uh, somebody dunked us uh, in water and we came up out of the water, that somehow that equates to a genuine relationship with Jesus. Self-deception happens when we fail to examine ourselves. In Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, which Corinth was a city that uh, is not too unlike some American cities today, and he wrote this to the Christians that were at Corinth. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or don't you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, of course, you fail to meet the test. In other words, a person who's not concerned with confessing present sin and moving in the right direction has reason to doubt whether or not he actually has gotten to the point where his past sin has been forgiven. Has he ever really recognized that he's a sinner, that he's in need of a Savior? Did she ever really place her trust in Christ alone? If you don't have concern about confessing present sin and moving in the right direction, then it would lead one to believe that maybe your past sin was never really forgiven. Number three, we have a tendency when we're self-deceived, we overemphasize religious activity. We, we attend church, we listen to sermons on podcasts, we go to Bible study, we, we sing worship songs, they might even be on in our car, we serve in a ministry of the church, and all those things can be good, but they can make us assume that we're being obedient when in fact we're really not. All we are is consumed with religious activity. And then number four, we can buy into the idea of the fair exchange approach, which I think many people do. We buy into the idea that instead of moving on and confessing our sin and moving in a new direction, we just simply need to balance the bad with the good. In other words, if there's a scale up here and we're doing just enough good that is better than the bad that we're doing, then somehow we're okay. And in those cases, in all four of those situations, we are deceived. We've put ourselves at risk that one day Jesus says, depart from me, you. I never knew you. Our relationship with Jesus and our status before God is not based on a decision that we made. It's not based on a prayer that we, made, that we prayed. It's not ba based on a card that we signed or a hand that we raised. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which um, if you're familiar with him, he was a, a German pastor. He was um, uh, concerned with saving Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, ultimately, it cost him his life. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's got some incredible books uh, that are out there. There was a book that was written uh, several years ago, uh, a biography uh, of his life. It's fascinating. But he knew the reality of this kind of self-delusion in the Lutheran church he was in in Germany. In his day, he referred to it as cheap grace. That was the term he used to describe it. Here was a church like many churches in America in which the profession of faith was present and in which good works were done, but in which the people had simply not been born again. There was simply never change that took place in their life. They gave a story of being run over by a Mack truck at 70 miles an hour, but there was no evidence that that had ever happened. They were taught grace, but it was grace without conversion. In Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote this, 
Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And here, my friends, is the bottom line this morning. And it's something that we need to understand, we need to be very convinced of, and that is this. If you call yourself this morning a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are committing to follow Jesus in every single area of your life. Not just the areas in which are convenient. Not just when you enter into a place like this and you worship together for an hour and 15 minutes. It's true, of course, that no one enters, to have, enters into heaven simply because of their obedience. But it's equally true that no one enters into the kingdom who is obedient, who's not obedient. We're saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ. But it's equally true that grace in a man's life inevitably when we as human beings have experienced the grace of God, that ultimately that relationship, that grace, it leads us not only to repentance, but it leads us to obedience in every single area of our life. And here's my fear. It's so easy for pastors, and for that matter, any follower of Jesus Christ. I've been guilty of it. Many of you, if you have ever shared your faith with somebody, you've probably been guilty of it. We try to make Jesus as appealing as we can, don't we? I, I was a youth pastor for uh, many years, and I remember so many conversations in which I sat with high school students, and I talked to them about what it would mean for them to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I, like you have done many times, would, would try to make it as, as appealing as I could. I would try to make it as convenient as I could for them, as comfortable as I possibly could. But you know, Jesus never did that. In fact, if you read in the Gospels, and I hope that you do, if you're here and you're not used to reading God's Word and studying God's Word, people say to us all the time, well, where is a good place to start? Well, Jerry talked last week. Start in the book of Matthew. Just start reading. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read the four Gospels. Read who Jesus was. Read what Jesus said to his disciples. He never attempted to talk people into following him by making it sound appealing at that particular moment. In fact, Jesus knew that there were many people that were following him that weren't really part of his Talmudim. They really weren't true disciples. They were intrigued by the miracles that he performed and by the things that he said. And for this reason, I believe, he took the opportunity to make sure people knew exactly what would be required of them if they were going to be true disciples, if they were going to be true followers of his, and not just simply fans who were intrigued by the moment. And he wrote, he said in, verse, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, he said this, and if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard this verse. He said, he said to all the people that were around him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so the call to follow Jesus is not simply a call to pray a prayer. 
You see, that's what some of us bought into, right? We bought into the idea. We went to a youth rally when we were in high school, and somebody scared us. You know, we sat in a Sunday school class when we were little, and maybe you had a, a, a sadistic Sunday school teacher that lit a Barbie doll on fire and said, do you want to burn in hell like this? And you went, no! And she said, pray this prayer. And we prayed the prayer. We prayed the prayer. We got the card. We got the whizzy button. But Jesus didn't call people to simply pray a prayer. He gave us a summons to do this, get this, he gave us a summons to lose our life. It's a call to leave our former way of life. Or that idea that we bought into the world system of what life was all about, about what our human experience was all about. Jesus was saying, leave that all behind and come and follow me. It's a call to leave your former way of life for a new way of life. And so Jesus gives a high challenge in verse 23. And there are several requirements of anyone who would be one of his disciples. And I want to walk you through those just real quickly. Notice several things. Jerry talked about this last week. Notice several, that it starts out, if what? If anyone. And that should encourage most of us this morning. As I look out over this crowd and I look into your face, you ought to be glad, as I am when I look in the mirror, that Jesus said, if anyone. Because for most of us, I'll just speak for myself, for me, if I had to be up against everybody else and they were picking the best of the best, I wouldn't have gotten picked. But Jesus said, if anyone, it's one of the most incredible things about Jesus' invitation. I love the story of the disciple Matthew. He's one of the most intriguing examples to me of this idea of anyone being able to be a disciple of Jesus. You know Matthew's past, right? I mean, he was a tax collector. In other words, he took money from his people and gave it to the corrupt Roman government. I mean, he wasn't only a sinner. We could say he sinned for a living. That's what he did. Now, if I'm Jesus and I'm looking for my Talmudim, I'm looking for my guys, the, the best of the best, Matthew isn't one that I would have chosen, and yet Jesus invited Matthew to come, come and follow me. You're part of that anyone. And then Jesus says, come after me. I don't know if you're like me, but I was sharing with Jerry yesterday, but for so many times, so many years, I've read this verse, I've memorized this verse, I know this verse, and I skip right, after, right over, anyone come after me. But did you know, I realized and found this out this week, that that phrase, come after me, was commonly used in the context of a romantic relationship. Isn't that awesome? When Jesus says, come after me, in other words, he's describing a passionate pursuit of someone that you love. Now, doesn't that put it into a whole different context? So the best way for us to understand what Jesus is telling us as his followers to do when he says that we're supposed to pursue him like we would pursue someone with whom we want to have a romantic relationship with. Does that put things into context for some of you? Some of you are going, I, I wish it did. I, that's where I'd like to be right now, but I've never been there. Well, if you've ever been in love, or if you've ever wanted to be in love, then you've probably got a story of doing something that seemed a little crazy to everybody else around you, right? Just a little bit crazy. Uh, the pers that pursuit of someone that you wanted to be with can easily consume your thoughts, your money, your time, and a good portion of your energy. I can remember when I met Diana and we 
we lived in separate states, and th- this was before you kids started enjoying the internet, right? I mean, this is before you could pick up the phone and you didn't think about, boy, it's a long-distance phone call, right? Anybody remember those days when you got your phone bill and you went, wow, my wife has talked too much on the... We, we lived in those days, right? And when we first met, uh, after that first weekend, I went back to Ohio and she was in New Jersey, and, um, and we started making the phone calls. And I'm telling you, we would talk on the phone for one hour, two hours, three hours. I was a pastor, so I only worked one day a week. But she, on the other hand, she was a school teacher. And she had to get up early in the morning and go teach uh, little children, third graders and fifth graders. And, and she would talk to me till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I look back and I go, what did we talk about? The idea was that we were so much wanting, at least I was, so much wanting to pursue that relationship with that person. I wanted to seal that deal. I wanted her to feel about me like I felt about her, and I was willing to do anything. And I could tell you story after story after story, and some of you could do the same thing, about what that romantic pursuit looked like. And that is exactly what Jesus expects from those of us who would desire to be one of his fully devoted followers, that we should pursue our relationship with him like we would a romantic relationship. And then he said, not only... Do we come after him, but we deny ourselves? This isn't just the idea of saying no to yourself. This is the idea of not even acknowledging that you exist. In Matthew 19, Jesus is talking with a man. In fact, we don't even know exactly what the man's name was. He's just referred to as the rich young ruler. How sad, right? You made it into the Bible, and they didn't even put your name there. You're just referred to as rich young ruler. And the man asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16, what would he need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus tells him finally, after some back and forth in verse 21, Jesus tells him that he needs to sell all his possessions. And when he gets all that money from selling his possessions on Craigslist, he should take all of that money and he should give all of that money to those who are poor. And then Jesus said, then come follow me. He was forced with following Jesus or keeping all the things that he accumulated, but he couldn't do both. We often look at this passage as being about money, and certainly that's an application in this, certainly in this text. And that's something to consider. But the bigger challenge is that neither this man or any of us can follow Jesus without denying ourselves. We're all going to have those crossroads uh, in our lives where we'll decide whether we will follow his path or our own. And for the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, uh, he decided he just couldn't do that. He just couldn't deny himself. And then Jesus said that not only are we to deny ourselves, but we are to take up our cross daily. <laughs> Listen again to what Jesus is requiring of those who would follow him. He's basically saying this. If you want to come and be part of my Talmudim, it's not like the other rabbis where you might be part of that circle. If you, if you want to come follow after me, then come on, come on, because we're going to die. And we look at that phrase and think, why would he say that? I mean, Jesus, in these particular cases, I mean, those of you that are in marketing, you would agree, right? I mean, this really isn't the way to market your costs, right? 
I mean, you don't say, hey, come follow me, because ultimately what it's going to require of you is it's going to require you to die. And not just die once, it's going to require you to take up your cross daily and die. Here's what you need to understand. In our culture, we have made the symbol of the cross to be an ornament or a piece of jewelry, right? In fact, it wouldn't be uncommon for many of you to have some piece of jewelry around your neck or maybe a ring or even a a tattoo on your body that was a cross. But for the audience that Jesus was speaking to, the cross was a symbol of suffering. The cross was a symbol of humiliation. The cross was a symbol of death. It was offensive. It was repulsive to them. Why would Jesus use that as a call to those who would follow him? I believe it's because he's making it clear that following him wouldn't be easy. And indeed, he was right. Many of his followers would suffer greatly and even die for the cause of Christ. Can I suggest to you this morning that it may be good for us that are here this morning who want to be truly devoted followers of Jesus to contemplate what it might look like for us to be fully devoted followers of Jesus in 2016. If there's one thing that this election process has done for me, it's caused me to understand that we've lived fairly comfortably in our culture for a couple hundred years or more. But that can change rather quickly, can't it? And it may just be that that's going to change in our lifetime. And Paul made it perfectly clear to uh, his young disciple, Timothy, that those days were going to come, that things weren't going to get better and better, but they were going to get worse and worse. I believe it's time for Christians in America in 2016 to wake up and look back at the call that Jesus ultimately had even in the beginnings of of this gospel revolution where he said, if you want to be one of my disciples, if you're going to follow after me, then it is going to require of you ultimately that you suffer. You're going to have to take up your cross daily. And so one person said it like this. I like this. Think of your life as a $100 bill. Most of us think of dying to ourselves, or we've heard this passage maybe preached some other time, we think of our life as a $100 bill and as, as one moment in which we hand that $100 bill over to God. And we give it to him and we say, this represents my life. I want you to have it. And that moment when we place that $100 bill in God's hands is a huge moment for us. If it's genuine, if it's real, then that particular moment, back to the Mack truck illustration, that particular moment is life-changing. Everything changes. But for many of us, we look at it as a one-time exchange. Our life represented by a $100 bill, we give it to God. But to see following Jesus as a one-time decision is like saying after your wedding, now that I'm married, I can get back to life as usual. (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to happen. Nothing is going to be usual again, as you have previously known it to be. Can I get an amen, newlyweds? It's just different, right? Now all of a sudden, you got somebody else, right? It's not just you. And the same thing is true in our relationship with Jesus. There's more to being a husband or a wife than a wedding ceremony, right? Instead of thinking of our lives, this person went on to say as a $100 bill that we give to God and that's the end of it, we should think of it as giving the $100 bill to God and he accepts it, but he says to us, this is mine, 
but I want you to go and I want you to cash it in for pennies and I want you to give it back to me one penny each day. Does that illustrate it well? It's a daily death. It's not just simply a one-time transaction that you go, here it is, here's the $100 that represents my life. You take it, now we're done. Any more than when you said I do to your husband or to your wife, you said, okay, we're done now, all right? Transaction is complete. I'll see you at particular moments, particular high points. I'll see you at the birth of our kids. I'll see you at their weddings, at their graduations. But until then, we're going to go and live separate lives. That's not possible, right? A husband and a wife don't just have a wedding ceremony. And so we need to cash that $100 bill in for pennies and give it back to him one day at a time. That's what it means to take up your cross daily. And then Jesus closed that section by just simply saying what we said last week, and that is the invitation again that we are to follow him. And it involves following Jesus wherever he calls us to go. That's a sobering thing. Whether you're here this morning and you're young or you're old, it's a very sobering thing to think that he might call you to go someplace that you don't want to go. We've got one of our young men who just graduated from high school that, uh, that uh, well, it's not this morning over there now, it's about uh, five o'clock in the afternoon, but he's over in the bush in Kenya in the middle of nowhere, and he's there all by himself surrounded by the Pocot people, because he felt God called him to go to some place that was incredibly extreme so that God could do something big in his life. Following Jesus says, I will go wherever you call me to go. It means that we're, uh, we're willing to do it whenever he calls us to do it. You know the problem with some of us, especially some of you that are right around my age, that, that 40s, that early 50s, you bought into the idea that, hey, I'm in the prime of my career now. These are my prime years to make money. I got to store up because I want to retire someday. I got to get things all in order. And for some of you, God is calling you to do something right now. And you're saying, no, not now. I couldn't possibly do that now. If I was 18 like Caleb Cross, maybe I could do it, but I couldn't possibly do that right now. God's not only calling you to go wherever he wants you to go, he's calling you to go whenever he wants you to go. And age is never a factor. It also means that we're willing to follow him in whatever he calls us to do. Wherever, whenever, and whatever, that's what it means to follow Jesus. And so what is the result of a fully devoted follower of Jesus? He gives us the answer in verses 24 and 25 there in Luke 9. He says this, For whoever would save his life. Some of us are really good at that, aren't we? Saving our lives. Making sure that we got everything packaged just right. Maybe a downturn in the stock market over the next few months because who knows who's going to be elected, you know, those WikiLeaks, that's all coming down. And so we're posturing and making sure that we're going to save our stuff, right? Jesus says that if you live your life that way, whoever would save his life, ultimately what's going to happen? You are going to lose it. But whoever loses his life, not because of your stupidity, not because of your ignorance, but whoever loses his life for my sake, what will ultimately happen? He will save it. Jesus ended that passage by saying, for what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world 
and he loses his own soul. Let me land the plane. Over the next uh, several weeks, we're going to challenge you with this principle. That true disciples, people whose lives are characterized by the things we just talked about this morning, true disciples make disciples. So what happens. It's just natural for that to happen. Reproduction takes place. True disciples make disciples. If we're truly followers of Jesus and not simply fans, then we make disciples. Some of you have never grown up in your faith because you've had no one to show you the way. And that's sad to me. There's some of you this morning and you're still young in your faith even though you came to understand your need of a Savior and you placed your trust in Christ alone as your Savior a long time ago. You've never grown up in your faith because there's never been anybody who cared enough to simply show you the way. And for some of us, we've known Jesus for so long and our heads are so fat spiritually that we've bought into the idea that we're just going to sit in a big easy chair and just coast out into eternity. Because somewhere along the line, we bought into the idea that it's okay to be a follower and just sit on our backside and do absolutely nothing and never make more disciples. Can I say to you that that is absolutely false, it's wrong, it's bad theology. True disciples make disciples. And so in the weeks to come, what we're going to do is we're going to challenge you to do that. Are you truly a disciple of Jesus? Has your life truly been transformed? Like you've been run over by a Mack truck that's going 70 miles an hour, and you'll never, ever, ever be the same. If that's true, then we want to challenge you now to go to the next level and become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. For some of you, you need to have input into your life right now. For others of you, you're like a sponge that hasn't been wrung out in so long. You need to be squeezed. You need to start investing some of your time in doing what God left you here to do, in making disciples. And Paul told Timothy in his second letter to young Pastor Timothy, in chapter 2 and verse 2, he said that the things that he had learned, he should teach others who would in turn teach others. And that's what we're called to do, to make disciples. And that's the kind of church we're going to be. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? That's awesome. That's the kind of church we're going to be. We're going to challenge you not with a, a low challenge. We're going to challenge you with a high challenge. That if you're going to be one of Jesus' followers, then you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross daily, and you've got to follow him. And as you do that, You're making other disciples. You're saying, come with me. Come experience what I've experienced. And let's together make sure that this world understands the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be individually. That's what we're called to be as the church. I want to challenge you. Could you stand with me? I want to challenge you this morning that no matter where you are in your particular journey, There are probably some of you this morning, and what you need to do is you need to run to the front when we're done. Jerry and I will meet you up here, and you need to let us pray with you that you'll finally get off your backside, and you'll start pouring into the lives of other people because you've been run over by a Mack truck. You've just been lazy. There are others of you, and you go, I love Jesus, 
I mean, I got run over by the Mack truck. The problem is, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the next steps are. Nobody's come around me and said, hey, can I meet with you? Can I spend some time with you? Can I tell you one of the greatest privileges in my life right now as a pastor? All the guys on our staff would say the same thing. The greatest privilege is when I sit with somebody one-on-one and I tell them and explain to them what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to get into a position where you influence and impact others with the life-changing message of the gospel. The greatest thing that will ever happen. Some of you have never had that happen. And so you sit here and you're very young in your faith. You've crossed that line of faith. You've placed your trust in Christ alone. You've just never had anybody show you the way. And we don't want to wait several weeks. If that's you this morning, come down here. We're going to start working through a process of getting you somebody who can help you with that. If you're here and you know that you could be one of those people who pours out, that you're that sponge, you've got too much water in you, somebody needs to wring you out. I've been given the spiritual gift of wringing your sponge out, all right? Jerry has too, and he'll help with, uh, with that process. So we'd love to talk to you this morning. Don't just walk out and just say, oh, that was, you know, half an hour, that was good, you know, whatever, good challenge. Let's do something about it, all right? Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, these people that we love God so deeply. And that's why, like you issued to us, we issue to them a high challenge to deny themselves, to take up their cross daily and to follow you wherever, whenever, and however you want us to go. So God, do a work in our heart. Use your spirit right now to convict us where there needs to be conviction. If we're a sponge that needs to be wrung out, then convict us of that. If we're somebody who's dry and dusty and we need to have somebody pour into our lives even right now, God, convict us of that and don't allow us to walk out of here without asking for help so that we can go to be the people that you have called us to be and you've saved us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.